all to the beginning of this retreat. I want to welcome you to Gaia House. I want to welcome you to your self, to your presence here, to the wonderful opportunity that we have to be present together. For those of you who I haven't met, I'm Eugene Cash. I'm one of the teachers at Spirit Rock in California, which is the sister center of Gaia House. Uh, also, sister center with the retreat center in um, Eastern America and in Switzerland. Um, and I also lead the uh, Insight Meditation Community of San Francisco. It's really fun to come here and see some friends who have sat at the Insight Meditation uh, community of San Francisco for many years who are here now. Um, it's also nice to see old friends and make some new friends being here. How many people here are new to meditation? How many people, how many people here are new to silent retreat form? Great. Okay. Welcome. How many people are would consider themselves experienced yogis? Let me see. You gotta raise your hands a little higher. Great. Okay. And how many people don't know where they sit at all? Okay. I'm, I'm really with you there. That's good. Okay. Just gives me a sense of who's here and what we're doing. Um, the name of this retreat is the intimacy of awakening and it's a phrase that I like a lot I'll talk about it in some detail tomorrow um, but partly it comes from uh, Zen Master Dogen who said to study the Buddha ways to study the self to study the self is to forget the self to forget the self is to awaken or to be intimate <coughs> And we'll investigate this intimacy the whole time we're here. That, that's our whole practice as we're here. Whether we're sitting, whether we're walking, whether we're doing our work meditation, whether you're doing your brushing your teeth meditation, eating meditation, we have this beautiful um, setting of Gaia House. We have these um, kind of rare conditions where we don't have to do anything. You know, you have uh, not your usual responsibilities. You don't have to deal with family or, you know, work <coughs> in terms of finances or for somebody else. Or, um, and there's no email and there's no television and there's no newspaper and there's no um, distraction from ourselves. And so this is what we study moment by moment. We study our direct experience of what we call the self. And as we begin to pay attention to it, we may find that we forget the self, that we find the whole idea of um, who we take ourselves to be may not be exactly who we are. Um, we'll begin to look at it, and we'll use um, a number of different themes over the course of our time together to begin to investigate this. 
the, the themes, and they, I wrote about them a little bit, but I'll speak uh, in more detail tomorrow night, and we'll look at them experientially starting now. The theme of being open, or openness, the theme of acceptance, the theme of intimacy. These three main, main themes we'll be working with. And you can, you can start now. You can notice the quality of being open to your experience right now. You can notice if you're accepting or rejecting your experience right now, whatever your experience may be. And then you can notice what's the actual quality of this experience beyond my idea about it. What's the flavor, texture, feeling, energy, aliveness, um, transiency, that is expressing itself here now. And so we begin to be more intimate with ourselves. The fourth thing, which I didn't say in the write-up or in the name, but is very important, will be we're going to work with our bodies a lot, with this experience, with the experience of sitting in your seat. And your body, usually in the meditation retreat, plays a pretty important role. Um, partly because sometimes it's cranky, sometimes it's tired, sometimes it's relaxed, um, sometimes it feels very light, sometimes it's heavy and weighty, sometimes it's warm, sometimes it's cool. It has a, there's a tremendous immediacy that we can work with, with our physicality. The whole, our whole world comes in through this physical entity and the different sense doors that we have, that we seem to be born with. This is from my teacher's teacher's teacher, Ajahn Mun, talking about investigating the world through the body. He said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Never allow the mind to desert the body. Never allow that tension. We could, we could say it. Never allow the mindfulness to desert the body. Examine its nature. Feel the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence. Sense the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of heart and mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So we have this really wonderful moment to be here. This wonderful moment that we're alive. Quite amazing moment, considering we never know when that won't be true. And so we can use, we can utilize this aliveness of body. The breath we'll be working with, the sensations of body, the feelings and emotions that also come with having a human incarnation. And even the thinking process itself, beginning to study the self in all its forms to see that we can forget or begin to relax or let go of the self 
and become intimate with each moment, with each thing, whether we like it or not, whether it's good or bad, whether it's our preference, whether it's our idea about what should be happening or not, that we can start to engage our life with the fullness of being as we sit here moment by moment by moment. Now Buddhism, as one of my teachers used to say, he used to say the Dharma is vast. The Dharma is vast. There's so many areas that we could study or investigate or practice, so many different ways just to practice. Um, often there's a lot of confusion about what it is to come to a meditation retreat or how it should be. And people have a lot of ideas there and views and opinions that are sometimes wrong views, or, or in, in, they're not accurate views, maybe it's a better way to say it, or um, one's opinion or view about what should happen may not be accurate. And I was reading, um, do you have Dear Abby here in England? Do you know what that is? Does anybody know what that is? Any, is there anything comparable? Does anybody know? Pardon? Agony Ant. Agony Ant? People know what agony ant is? Like people write in letters and then... So this is from somebody like agony ant in, in the States. And she, somebody wrote in and sent her, um, I guess it was an article that had been printed that contains the real answers given on a Bible knowledge test. And it's interesting, you know, what people think and the kind of views people have. Here's one of the answers was, Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. <laughs> or Paul preached acrimony, which is another name for marriage. <laughs> or, or, or Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> These are true answers. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> A Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> and the Jews had trouble throughout their history with unsympathetic genitals. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I, I offer this to you partly to um, a little bit encourage you to let go of whatever views or ideas or opinions you have about how it's supposed to be or what's supposed to happen or where your meditation is supposed to go. And I offer this to you um, really out of kindness that if you want to have a really hard retreat, have a lot of expectations. Have a lot of beliefs about what should happen. If you want to have a hard retreat. If you just want to have a retreat that's hard sometimes and then not so hard other times, let go of your expectations. Let go of whatever you think you need to get here. And then you have the possibility, we have the possibility of actually being with ourselves where we are, right where we are, moment by moment by moment by moment. Wherever that might be, when we're tired, then tiredness is, will be our meditation. 
When we're bored, boredom will be our meditation. When we're joyful, joy will be the meditation. When we're concentrated, we'll have concentrated meditation. When we're unconcentrated, we'll have an unconcentrated meditation. And the whole time, we'll study the human condition in all its myriad forms. Happy or sad, good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant. Um, the richness of this human life is not in any one part. And the possibility for awakening is not in one moment over another moment. It's in any moment. As we begin to let go of our ideas and our beliefs and our opinions and our views, then the Dharma comes alive and the Dharma can teach us. The Dharma, for those of you who aren't familiar with the word, um, is often translated as truth or the kind of the law of the way things are. Not, not law like it's handed down from somebody, the natural law, the natural dharma of the way things are. Now, we'll be here for a few days, and one of the questions that comes up and is actually quite important is, how do I, how do I make effort? How do I really do this so that I get benefit, that it benefits me? How do I do this in a way that's really skillful so that I maximize this time here, which is a very rare time? Um, it, it's rare on so many levels. I said a few before, you know, not you know, reading the paper, newspapers, but it's also not interacting on a social level. You're not here to interact. You don't have to be social beings here. We spend so much of our life being social and... Um, kind of whatever roles we are, parents or children or colleagues or friends, or those roles are not so important here. The only role that's important is the role of being attentive, of paying attention, of being present, not so much the social roles. And it's not that the social roles are bad or there's anything wrong with them. But we let go of them in the service of illuminating what's here moment by moment to moment in all its intimacy um, so that we can become more intimate with ourselves, with our experience, with the um, essence of who we are. So how do we make effort, effort that's skillful so that we benefit, we maximize our time, um, and we begin to illuminate who and what we are. I, I like to think about, consider, contemplate right effort in terms of uh, a certain level of paradox. Uh, I don't know how it is here in the UK, but I know in America growing up, often people associate effort with tension. Like, I'm going to make effort, and I have to, immediately, it, it's like there's a clenching or a tightening or a contracting. And I like to challenge that idea. I think that, that to make wise effort is to relax, 
first of all, and to relax over and over again. Um, and so I think, I, I believe that effort is not tension, and there, but relaxation is not indulgence. And so here's the dynamism that we're looking at, is this confluence of effort and relaxation, of, of really a kind of um, steadfast and wholeheartedness in our practice with a sense of ease and kindness and relaxation. And what is, how is it to live each moment with that as our orientation while we're here for these two days? That you really want to make your whole heart enough and you want to give yourself to the practice. And, and when I say give yourself to the practice, partly I mean give yourself to the form and so the form can carry you. And this is, um, we have a very, very simple form. Everybody see the form? Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, eat. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, eat. Talk, sit, walk, sit, you know. I mean, that's it. We're not doing anything here. Everybody got that? That's it. I'm giving you the secret teaching now. Mm-hmm. We're not doing anything. <laughs> and, it, and it's beautiful, the simplicity of the form. Don't let the simplicity um, um, veil the power of that form. There's a power in simplicity. Sometimes people think what's difficult is that it's all complex and there's so much to learn and there's so much to do. I don't know if that's accurate. What I see is that it's difficult because it's so simple and we're not used to the simplicity of being. We're just not, we're not oriented towards it. We're so oriented towards doing that when there's this opportunity to be, it's hard. It actually takes, um, it's like a a vehicle in motion can't just stop. You know, it has to, and then it can stop. And it's a little bit like that for us. And... And so again, if you let go of any expectation about how this is supposed to happen, you can be very kind to yourself as it happens in whatever way it will happen for you. So making your effort here uh, in some sense means not to um, get tense. You don't have to strain. You don't have to be harsh with yourself in any way. I haven't seen harshness help much. A little bit, if you, when I was a young man, I used to be a little kind of macho in practice, and it has its place for, for a while. But it, it won't, I didn't find it carried me over the life of practice. And at some point I had to learn the power of kindness, of really being kind to myself, and seeing that that could carry me really way beyond tension and harshness and criticism, etc. And then not to indulge yourself, to be wholehearted. Give yourself to the form. When it says sit, sit. When it says walk, walk. When it says eat, eat. Now, some people are kind of naturally rebellious, right? How many of you are here? 
Yeah, right. There they are. Actually, what's interesting is Vipassana often attracts a lot of anarchists. <laughs> um, but what, when anarchists discover that a simple form can really help them achieve their goal, they can be quite committed to that form. At least that's what I found in my own practice and what I've seen in the Vipassana community. Um, it, sometimes it's helpful if I say a few words about the form. The form is not sacred. The form is arbitrary. Somebody made up this form. Um, so you don't have to take it on. The form is not a religion. The form is a support so that you don't have to think about what you want to do next. You don't have a lot of choices. You can't, you're not going to think, well, should I go out to the movie, or should I get a video, or should I call this person, or maybe I'll stay home with the book, or maybe I'll write for a while. No. Because you've given up all of that. When the bell rings, you either get up and walk, come back and sit, or go eat. That's it. Beautiful. Quite pristine. And if you can give yourself to it, it allows something to relax. It'll, it helps that doing relax, we can start moving towards being. Now remember, we're human beings, not human doings. The Buddha, when he talked about practice, and this was at the end of his life when he was dying, he said, make a light, make of yourself a light. Make of yourself a light. And this simple practice of paying attention, of being mindful, of staying with our bodies and our experience moment by moment by moment um, has this great paradox that I, sometimes I give a whole talk just about this piece, which is that even though it looks like we're doing it, we're not doing it. We do the form, we give our best, sincere, wholehearted effort but what happens is the practice does us. Now we, we do make a certain kind of effort, but we can't control almost anything. What we can do is show up for how life is expressing itself through us, moment by moment. And illumination happens, starts to happen. This, this um, relaxed, open, accepting, kind, Intimate attention brings a luminosity of being. It's amazingly simple and amazingly um, deceptive because we think we have to do so much. Really, one way we could think about it, we're just unveiling what's already here, what's got covered over. Got, it's like a, a lamp, it's got a shade on it, and somebody put some plastic, and then they put a cloth on it, and then it's got dust on it, and we're just letting all the layers come off, and then the illumination shines bright, because it's your nature, because it's your Buddha nature. Make a light of yourself may also mean lighten up a little bit. Do you have that expression here in the UK? Yeah really good to keep it light on a meditation retreat. Part of the paradox of making effort and keeping it light, being relaxed. 
sometimes on retreats I like to talk about it like this. Um, in California, I live in San Francisco, and for many, many years I swam in San Francisco Bay, which is cold water swimming, but you can really do it year-round. It never gets below 45 or so, 46. Never gets above 62. I don't know if that. I don't know the translation to that Celsius. But what that means is it gets really cold in the winter, but you can keep swimming. And in the summer, it's just moderately cold. Um, and I've swam some of the swims that people do competitively sometimes. The Golden Gate, I swam, and Alcatraz. I swam, so they take you to a boat and they drop you off next to Alcatraz Island in the middle of the bay. That was a prison that they said nobody could escape from because the waters were too cold and the, and the tides were too hard. And so you get dropped off and you swim into San Francisco. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a good swim and it's, it's something to do, you know. <laughs> um, and. And the, when I did it the first time, I, I didn't train at all. I was just swimming in the bay regularly, and then I decided to do it, and, um, and like three days before. And I remember when I, on the boat, when they were taking me out, there's a photo of me on the boat, and I look a little like a hound dog, because um, you wear the swim caps and a bathing suit, and that's all, and the swim cap with flaps. So I, but it's not just the flaps is not why I look like a hound dog. I was actually really scared. And I thought, well, why did I think I wanted to do this? And uh, some of you may be having that feeling right now of, you know, how did I get myself into this? But somebody gave me a really good instruction about how to do the swim. Somebody who'd done it a number of times. He said, start slow and finish slow and in the middle make your push. And that's a really nice way to think about a meditation retreat. Start slow, finish slow, and in the middle make your push. And of course on a meditation retreat to make your push in the middle means to go slower. <laughs> but, but, it, but, it, but there's something in that quality of take it easy, just relax, you know, you'll, you'll relax tonight after the talk, go to sleep early, get up. Just show up for things, show up. And as you get some rhythm, and really, really work with being present moment by moment by moment. And then at the end, when it's time to let go, slow down a little. You know, don't, don't be, you know, you'll, I'll even tell you at some point, relax, open up, or whatever. And then, and then we'll be at the shore. Funny, it's the Buddha often used that metaphor for awakening. I just got it of going to the other shore. Um, what else do I want to say? The form, everything is practice here. Work meditation. Don't let that deceive you. It's an important part of your practice. Because we have all this time here in silence, and with ourselves, there'll be this one hour where you get to really work with that in work. You get to really practice with that in your work, whether it's wiping the tables or, you know, what, whatever it might be, cleaning a bathroom. Um, notice, notice what it's like to also give yourself wholeheartedly to the work period. 
and if you're working with other people to really only talk if you need to it's a short time we'll be here you'll have plenty of time to socialize at the end of the retreat for now we're really going to hold silent and I'll say more about that in a couple minutes I know something else I want to say. We're sharing the retreat with a number of other retreatants. Like if you look around here, this looks like the whole retreat, but it's not. Um, there's, I don't know how many people are in Bodhidharma's retreat. Do you know? You don't know? Ten? So there's about ten people who are in this other wing and who are doing a retreat with uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhidharma, who's one of the resident teachers here. And you'll see them, they'll be moving pretty slow. So you don't have to move quite as slow as them. But sometimes you can get in inspired just to try moving as slow as them. It's very interesting, lovely practice. And so I like to think of them as part of our retreat, that they're not actually a different retreat. They're just doing a slightly different practice that we're really here together. Um, and for me, that there's something really um, heartwarming when I at Spirit Rock we do this sometimes we have two retreats at the same time but really I like to think of them as one and not only that there's a whole wing the hermitage wing where people are doing personal retreats and I'd like to include them just in our feeling about them in our sense of inclusion um, if you see somebody going really slow and you know you, you're going a little faster uh, let them go really respect their pace and their quietness some people have been doing a very long retreat, you know, months and months. Um, somebody was on a year-long retreat when I was here in the summer. I don't think it's over. So um, let's just include them, both their spirit and their inspiration, as part of our retreat. Um, especially for the new people. You'll have a lot of reactions. You're going to have sittings that are great or horrible or walkings that are great or horrible. You don't have to make any final judgment until after the retreat is over. You don't have to um, assess yourself every 10 minutes or 15 minutes or hour. or Just let it be. Okay, it's like this now. That's how it is. It's like this. That's how it is. Um, when it's over, maybe even a day or two, then might be a good time to assess what happened on the retreat. Um, if you can, let go of making the assessment during the retreat. Even though you'll have reactions and you'll do a little assessing, let me say it this way, don't make your final assessment until the retreat is over. And then you'll maybe you'll have a sense of what's happened. <coughs> There's a famous yogi in America called Yogi Berra, who was a baseball player. He <laughs> says, it ain't over till it's over. Your retreat's not over till... I don't know when exactly. Probably sometime someday. So this is really a little talk to welcome you. Uh, and, that, and hopefully orient you to the form and the sense of being present here moment by moment by moment 
And you can just check now. You don't have to go into a formal posture even. Just feel your experience now. Start with your body. What does your body feel like? Whatever thoughts, reactions, ideas you've had to the talk or my words. Just feel your body being here. Maybe tired or achy, cranky, relaxed. Whatever it is, keep even moving beyond the conceptual idea of how it is to the felt sense, the living presence of what's happening now, which will ultimately always be beyond words. Don't you want to go? 
and somewhere in it he would say, this world is not my home. And um, Sun Ra was kind of an amazing guy. I don't think I should talk about him too much. <laughs> but I think we feel that. I think we feel like, you know, we haven't quite found our place. Even if we have a home and a family and everything, there's still something that we're looking for. Something that moves us, a kind of existential um, dissatisfaction or dis-ease. In Buddhism, we would talk about this is one of the qualities of dukkha, or suffering, this dis-ease. Um, and so refuge is really looking for what, where is their true refuge? Where do we really find refuge? Do we find it in the things of this world, in the material things? Do we find it in relationship or other people, or where do we find it? Buddhism suggests that we find it in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And very simply, you might reflect on what that means to you. I'll give you some of my reflections. One is that it means that we begin to see that there is a part of our nature that is awake, that is wise, that is good, that is beyond our conditionality, beyond our personality, that is sometimes talked about as our true nature, and that we can begin to take refuge in this. And refuge isn't like, um, oh, we, we trust in something outside of ourselves. It means that we begin to trust in something inside of ourselves, something really to the core of who we are. Now we can begin to take refuge in our Buddha nature. And so the awakening that is um, symbolized by the archetype of the, the Buddha, who sat under the tree, who studied the self, to forget or let go of the self, and was then awake, illuminated, free. We also take refuge in the Dharma, in the truth of the way things are, the natural law of the way things are. We begin to see that to, uh, as we investigate this human experience, we begin to see the various characteristics of what, what are universal to all humans. Everything changes, nothing is permanent. All sentient beings suffer. It's just part of, of the sensitivity of being sentient. Part of the sensitivity of being a human being is that um, if it gets too cold here, it'll be a kind of suffering. Or if, it, if you sit too long, there'll be a certain kind of suffering. Or if we, if we try to hold on to things that are impermanent, whether it's a book or a person or a job or a house or a a society, whatever it is, that won't suffer. And we begin to see that our whole idea of our, the self-centered um, orientation that um, seems to be conditioned by our society and our culture and uh, um, partly maybe just part of the human being, human um, history even, 
may not be who and what we are in essence. That the whole sense of self is up for grabs about who and what we are. So taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. This is an interesting jewel. Sangha means uh, often community or community of Buddhist followers or seekers or um, but I think I think it's important to broaden it a little bit more. Uh, my understanding of taking refuge in the Sangha means to take refuge in our in the unity of everything. That we are not separate in any way, shape or form in the way we consider ourselves to be separate. You know, we often talk about how we like to go out in nature. Everybody, know, you notice that? Oh, it's really good to get out in nature. That's the way we really feel like ourselves in nature. We can relax in nature. We often forget that we are nature. All the elements that are outside, all the elements of earth, air, fire, and water, they're all right here. We're, we're the same as a tree or a plant or any, any, all of nature. We arise for a while, we appear, we sustain for a while, and then we dissolve, we disappear, just like the whole universe. And we're not exactly separate at all. It's kind of a misunderstanding or a delusion of perception. And so to take refuge in the Sangha begins to take refuge in our interconnectedness with all things. And so I'll say the refuges, I think we'll just do them in English now. We'll repeat them three times, this is traditional. Um, please feel free to join me. Um, uh, and I'll begin uh, I don't know the homage in English. I'll do the homage in Pali. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. And it basically I pay homage to the Buddha, to the enlightened one, to the awakened one. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. And then a second time, please join me. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. A third time. I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. Really, form a very uh, 
loving container for our time here together. Uh, the precepts in Buddhism all are um, pointing towards the practice of non-harming. In Buddhism, it's actually, um, precepts are considered uh, ethical precepts. The word that I really like is virtue. And it's a word that we don't use much, at least in the States. We don't use this word much. But uh, in Buddhism, it's an important term that it's a virtue to be ethical. And virtue has the same root as um, virility. And it implies a power. It's the power of our integrity. It's the power of our heart. It's the power of kindness and compassion. And it's the power of non-harming. And so on a retreat like this, we ask everyone to, for the purposes of this training that we're doing, to um, take the precepts, the five precepts of non-harming. And the precepts are not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse one's sexuality, not to misuse one's speech, not to uh, intoxicate the mind with, uh, not to use intoxicants, to refrain from intoxicants. And there are um, practices, uh, sometimes people hear them as prescriptions, but they're actually not commandments. What they are, are um, uh, they're, they're vows that we take for the purposes of training, and so they support the meditation practice. It's actually really hard to meditate when you're lying and stealing and cheating and killing. It, the mind, it just makes too much mind stuff. And so it's for your, your own benefit. It's not just, oh, you're being a nice person. It's, it's a way to act wisely in order to support your meditation, which then supports your illumination. It's quite systematic in Buddhism that way. Uh, it's not and never just about being nice. That was not the Buddha's interest. His interest was always about being awake. And he looked for what supported being awake. And vir he saw the power of virtue. And so I'll just say the precepts and ask you to find a way to align with them in your heart in a way that works for you. And the first precept is that for the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from killing. And so you might shut your eyes for a moment and just reflect on that. What does that mean? Not to kill animals, not to kill the spiders. It may mean not to kill time while you're here. Not to kill the life, the goodness of the life that you are by being harsh or critical or mean to yourself while you're here. For the purpose of training, I vow not to take what hasn't been given. This is the vow not to steal. It means that you can leave your cushion in here and when you come in, nobody's going to take it. Or that if you leave your food, nobody's going to take it. Or in your room, nobody's going to take anything. There's also something implied in this vow. It's the vow that we begin to understand that what, what we really seek will not be found outside of ourselves. 
that we there's not something we need to get from somebody else or something that's going to make us happy. And so it's really easy to take this vow not to steal. For the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from sexual expression. And really what that means on retreat is that we're not going to act on our sexuality in any way or shape or form. It doesn't mean you won't have sexual feelings or thoughts or fantasies. That's fine. That happens on retreat actually quite commonly. But because we're Sangha here together now, we want to protect everybody's retreat. And so we don't want to infringe or um, in any way um, um, impact somebody's retreat with the power of our sexuality. And so it means you don't, you don't make eye contact with people or flirt or anything like that. But it's fine for you to have your own feeling and then to practice with that, study the self, that it sometimes has these energies. For the practice of training, I vow to refrain from false speech, for the misuse of speech. And this is pretty simple here. Don't talk. <laughs> you don't have to do much more than that, for the most part. Uh, and now it also means don't read and write. Don't use words. Um, in the way we normally do, not because they're bad, but because we're cultivating an immediacy of an experience moment by moment. And as we go into talking and writing and reading and thinking, then we cultivate the whole world of mind, which is a world you all already know about really well. And we want to cultivate the world of being, which is not so much a conceptual world ultimately. So we, and so we, this precept and the not speaking is not because any of that is bad. It's because it doesn't support the illumination that we're looking at, looking for right now. And it's considered a noble silence. Um, and the nobility is in caring ourselves and being present and caring for everyone else that way. It also means don't leave notes for other yogis. I know the manager said that, but I want to reinforce that. If somebody's doing something, breathing in a way that's disturbing you, first of all, that becomes part of your meditation. The irritation, the reaction, that's all part of practice. But if it's really something that needs to be dealt with, then leave me or the manager to know and let us deal with it, and we'll be happy to. So, to refrain from false speech, and let me assure you, even though we won't be talking, you're going to hear a lot of words just sitting here. Not only from me, but from yourself, right? So it won't be totally quiet if you're nervous about that. And then the last, uh, for the purpose of training, I vow to refrain from intoxicants. And we don't want to intoxicate the mind with drugs or alcohol 
um, because we want we want to let the mind's natural clarity begin to reveal itself. At the same time, if you're taking medicine, like I have to take some medicine right now for an infection, you still want to take the medicine, even if it has an impact on you. Uh, don't not take medicine that's prescribed and for an illness or something that you're dealing with. So let's just shut our eyes for a moment and just let yourself sense or feel into the flavor of non-harming that these five precepts represent and find your own way to align with them. Find your own way to let them become a support for your practice and the practice of everybody here together. Not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse one's sexuality, not to misuse speech, not to intoxicate the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.